Um, I would hazard to guess that this text that is before us here in, in 1 Peter chapter 2 is probably not one uh, that a lot of people spend a lot of time meditating and studying over and, and uh, probably not a, a lot of memory verses come out of uh, the passage about slaves uh, submitting to their masters. So uh, maybe a little bit unfamiliar. But context is going to be really important for us. Understanding this letter and why Peter says what he says is going to be really important for us. So, <coughs> excuse me, I want to give us a little bit of background and then dive into the text itself. First of all, recognize that this is addressed to a group of, of Gentile Christians probably in the early 60s. So we're about 30 years after the death of Jesus. And the gospel has spread beyond Judaism to now the, where the Gentiles are and, and gotten a foothold, actually only a, a real small toehold, into the pagan world. But it's still an extremely small movement when Peter writes this letter. In fact, uh, at this point, we could probably say that it's far less than one-tenth of one percent of the Roman Empire has anything to do with Christianity. But the Christians that Peter is addressing are actually in the Roman provinces of Asia Minor, and that's modern-day Turkey, so we know where this exactly is very well. Um, and it's likely that they haven't been Christians for very long because it took a little bit of time for the gospel to get from Jerusalem uh, to Asia Minor and then on into Greece and Rome. But they're already facing some hardship, some persecution. And if you look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, he says this, In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Now, Peter isn't referring to the official persecution by the Roman government, uh, those images that you might have of early Christians suffering uh, at, at the hands of beasts and, and gladiators and so forth in the Roman arena. That's from a later period of time. We're still talking about informal persecution. In fact, the, the first real formal persecution of Christians is going to happen only in a few years from now. Uh, in 64, Nero is going to uh, kill a number of Christians because there's a fire in Rome. And it, he has actually been blamed for the fire as the arsonist. So he needs a scapegoat. And he uses Christians as the scapegoat. In fact, this is the persecution uh, during which Peter himself is said to have been put to death, crucified upside down. But at this point, where we are in the history of early Christianity, it's still informal persecution. And we're not exactly sure what form it would have taken. Uh, is it slander? Is it prejudice? Is it discrimination? Is there physical violence? We, we don't know exactly. But it's clear that the Christians are under some kind of stress. And, and so Peter is writing this letter to tell them, how do you live as a faithful Christian in such difficult circumstances? So let's begin with our section, as Jeb read earlier, chapter 2, verse 11 and following. That's where we'll be. You'll notice at the beginning of this section that Peter addresses these Christians as foreigners and strangers. And these are actually technical terms that are often used for those who are living in a land that is not theirs, that where they're not citizens. We call them today in, in America aliens. For these folks, they haven't come from the outside. What Peter is, is doing here is referring to this term metaphorically. That here you have, because of their commitments and life choices, a group of pagans who have now become Christians, and they're living in their own land as foreigners. They're living in their own cities as aliens. They just don't quite fit in anymore. They're living among the pagans, those whom they used to be themselves, 
but now as the people of God. Peter mentions in, in chapter 1, uses the language of a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. But it's the very change in identity that has caused them this problem. But look at verse 12. Peter says something very curious here. Live such good lives among the pagans, though, that they, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Now, why would pagans be accusing Christians of doing anything wrong? Is that, what's Peter talking about? What's going on here? It's, it's kind of a curious statement. Now, we don't know exactly what they might have been saying, but we actually have a little bit of information regarding this. We can make some good guesses. You see, when the, when the Jesus movement first began, everybody who was following Jesus were Jews, and no one could tell the difference from the outside because they were all Jews. But as soon as the movement begins to make inroads among the Gentiles, people begin to notice, and they can recognize something. Because these new believers are no longer attending the pagan festivals or feast days. And in the ancient world, uh, the pagans would celebrate all year long. There were all kinds of festivals and religious holidays in which uh, they would celebrate their gods. And none more uh, important than the one that celebrated the patron deity of the particular city. There would be parades where you would uh, carry the image of the god or goddess through the street. You would then have lots of sacrifices, and they would share the meat, and they would have a, a large outdoor picnic. And so when the Christians don't show up to that, people begin to take notice of that. And they begin to recognize, especially those who would perhaps be neighbors to these new believers, would notice that they weren't there. And as time went on, the Christians actually get a reputation for being atheists, because they don't believe in the gods, and they don't worship the gods, and they don't participate. But participating in the religious festivals was how one showed one's loyalty, how you were a good citizen, because it was through those festivals that you incurred the favor of the gods and ensured that they would help your city out. And so that would uh, not sit well with the pagan neighbors. And we also know from the second century that there were rumors that circulated about Christians, that they had this interesting reputation. We're not sure how many of these were, were in play in the first century, but maybe. So, for example, uh, Christians were thought to be cannibals. And you might see how perhaps misunderstandings regarding the Lord's Supper could lead to this. After all, Jesus did say, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And so a little misunderstanding there. They were also charged with being, uh, with the charge of incest because they promiscuously called one another brothers and sisters. And some of these folks were even married to one another. You see, the pagans didn't know a lot about Christians. They met in secret. They met early in the morning or late at night behind closed doors. And, and people didn't really know what was going on, but they heard rumors and they, they heard words thrown around. And so, for example, the Christians would meet together in something they called the agape, the love feast. And, and rumors began to circulate about some perhaps untoward things that were going on where brothers and sisters were gathering in drunken, incestuous orgies behind closed doors. And, and so Christianity had a PR problem. And Peter knows this. Peter recognizes this. 
And, and so the question becomes, what are you going to do in a situation like that? How do you dispel these rumors? How do you address a situation where people think that you might be doing something wrong? So Peter has a deliberate strategy of how to counter what the, the, uh, the pagans might be thinking. And this becomes the key to understanding this entire text. What Peter is addressing here is not just a clash of lifestyles, but also of worldviews, of life commitments, of core commitments and values. And we have to recognize that as you think about those responses of the Christians, there were actually multiple options. One option that the Christians could have taken was to withdraw, to, to move away from society and to live on their own. In fact, this is what some of the Jews did in the Qumran community. There was a group of Jews that felt like the Jewish religious establishment in Jerusalem was unauthorized, that they had the wrong high priest. And so they, they went away into the desert and lived by themselves in a monastic-like community. Another alternative was to fight. Other Jews took this approach. That was the zealots. They got tired of the Roman oppression, and so in 66, they actually rebelled against Rome and tried to fight them off. That didn't work so well for them. They actually got crushed and defeated, and the temple got destroyed. But it was an option. But Peter knows that these are not the kinds of approaches that would work. And so he takes an entirely different approach. He says, to dispel the rumors, you must live among the pagans in the most upright of ways. You must be holy. You have to do good. And you need to submit. It's a nasty word. We don't like that word. And in so doing, Peter hopes not only to change their minds, but also their hearts as well. In fact, that's probably what he means at the last part of verse 12 where he says that they may glorify God on the day he visits us. That Peter's vision is if you live this way, some of those pagans might join you so that when Jesus comes back, they too will celebrate because now they're Christians as well. You see, Peter's strategy is a missionary strategy. It's a strategy of how Christians can live, not only so that they can be saved, because they won't be saved, but how they can convert a pagan world. And, and the key verb that he uses over and over again in this section is submit, be subject, subject yourself. Peter instructs these persecuted Christians to submit to every human authority. And, and then he talks about three specific groups. Governing authorities like the emperor, masters, and husbands. And so let's read these three scriptures very quickly. First Peter 2, 13 and following. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority, or to governors who are sent uh, by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. 1 Peter 2.18, slaves in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters. And then 1 Peter 3.1, wives in the same way, submit yourselves in your, uh, to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. In all three cases, Peter commands them to submit. Now, we're going to focus in just a minute on what Peter says uh, to slaves, but I want to make some general comments about this entire context. You see, 
Peter is doing would look familiar to the pagans. This is what their philosophers had done as well. It, it was a, an assumption among the philosophers that to have a, a stable society, you had to begin with the household, that a well-run household secured uh, a stable government. And so they used what they called household codes as a way of teaching. And so when Peter writes these things, he is saying things that would be familiar to his audience. When Peter says to slaves and wives that they should submit, everybody would understand this and would recognize this and would agree with this. But the reason Peter is saying it is entirely different, and that's what we need to recognize. For Peter, submitting to the government or to masters or to husbands is not about maintaining the status quo. It's not because Peter believes that sla slavery is a God-ordained institution. For Peter, it's all about advancing the kingdom of God. Peter wants the pagans to be without excuse. The only thing they should stumble over as they come closer to God is the cross of Christ. The rumors must be dispelled. The, the Christians have to live above reproach. As he says in verse 15, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. His ultimate goal is that the pagans be led to belief. And we can see this clearly going back to that instruction to wives in chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. Notice it's right there when he says, Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by that behavior of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. And whenever we come to this text, or texts like these, we cannot forget Peter's focus, what his goal is, this missionary strategy. So now let's turn to our text regarding slaves. Verse 18 and following. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if you bear up under the pain of unjust suffering because you are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. You see, Peter calls these Christians to obey, not just the good masters, not those who were worthy of obedience, but he calls even to obey those who are harsh and those who are abusive. And it could be that you've never heard a sermon on this particular text before because we don't know anything about slavery. We don't have slavery among us. So just a word about what it was like to be a slave in the ancient world. It was ubiquitous. Slaves filled a variety of roles in agriculture, in business, in trade, in the household. The worst job you could have as a slave was in the mines. You didn't survive very long. And slavery could be very different kinds of experiences depending on what situation you found yourself in and who your master was. Some, those well-educated, might actually have important roles to play in business and trade, and they might even be able to get a little bit of money to set aside for themselves. But other slaves didn't fare so well. But all slaves were without honor. They couldn't even earn honor. They were property. 
and they could be used by their master however he saw fit. And oftentimes this could involve in degrading and dehumanizing kinds of things. Masters could use their slaves, for example, for sexual gratification. The slaves that Peter is mentioning here, the word is, is, seems to indicate domestic slaves, those of the household. And their situation can, could vary greatly depending on the nature of their master. But the key point to recognize here when we look at this text is that Peter allows no exception or exemption to his call to submit, even if the master is abusive. They're still called to submit, that seems like injustice to us. That seems so ludicrous. But Peter says you have to submit. But in this case, no longer as those who are forced to obey. If you read earlier, he talks about them as free persons who are now slaves of God. They submit of their own free will as a choice because they belong to the people of God. They do it for the sake of others. In fact, if you read closely, they do this for the sake of the very ones who are abusing them. Both Peter and Paul take the same strategy regarding slavery. You see, they didn't have the luxury of radical social reform. They thought Jesus was coming back soon, and they couldn't risk uh, the reputation of Christians being uh, smeared as rebellious or insurrectionists. Christians uh, needed to move forward in the social structure as it was. They were perceived as a movement. If they were perceived as a movement encouraging resistance or rebellion to Rome, they wouldn't be hurt. If they, it was thought that they were encouraging slave rebellion or wives to be disrespectful to their husbands, they wouldn't be hurt. And so both Peter and Paul say, submit. Peter calls them to submit, in essence, to surrender. To surrender their own wills, to surrender even their own flesh. But not a weak need, I have no choice kind of surrender. Rather, Peter calls them to surrender with a full consciousness of who they now are in God. To subject themselves for the sake of these others. Even if it means suffering unjustly. And why would anyone... Do such a ludicrous thing. How could anyone ask such a thing? And the very end of the text tells us. Because they follow Jesus. He does not ask anything he did not do. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. You see, Jesus serves as this ultimate paradigm. Follow my example. Now, enough of the past. Aren't we thankful that we don't have slavery today. Aren't we thankful that we don't really have to listen to this kind of a text? Their situation seems so distant from ours. I mean, the threat of any significant persecution is, is really remote to us. Now, we have to grant, of course, that there are some places in the world today where Christianity, of course, is small and it's insignificant and the threat of persecution is very, very real. But not for us. 
not where we live. Our situation is completely different. I mean, suffering for us is when the air conditioning goes out. It's when the line at Starbucks is a little too long. That's what suffering is. So what do we do with a text like this? I mean, we live in a, in a social context in which the, the distinction between Christians and pagans sometimes is, is hard to even discern, where there might be a non-believer whose moral system and structure is actually surpassing that of a Christian. What do you do with a text like this? I mean, the Christianity is no longer this secret, unheard of uh, religion. I mean, it's proclaimed every day in multiple formats. What do you do with a text like this? I mean, none of us are slaves. We have no masters to submit to. So what do you do with a text like this? Do we simply relegate it to the past and say, you know, boy, I... I really appreciate the fact of what they went through, and I'm glad that they suffered for us so that we could have the faith still today. Let's applaud them and celebrate them. What do you do with a text like this? I'll tell you one thing we shouldn't do. One thing we shouldn't do is to use a text like this to justify repressive uh, social structures. You know, this is actually what Southern Christians did back in the 1800s during the slavery debate. They used text exactly like this, in fact, this one, to support the practice of slavery. And they said, look, the Bible doesn't condemn slavery. In fact, it requires slaves to obey their masters. Now, this approach, by the way, completely ignores the context and why Peter said what he said. Something we should probably keep in mind when we read Peter's instructions to wives in chapter 3. But we're not talking about that today. But in spite of the distance and foreignness of this text, I think there's a message that we need to hear pretty loudly. One that perhaps gets lost today. Peter reminds us that at the very heart of our faith is a crucified Messiah, a suffering servant, a Lord who calls us to follow his example, to remember that we follow a man who gave up everything for us, a man who was willing to surrender all for us, to suffer indignation and pain and even death for us, and not just to rescue us, but so that we would know what we were supposed to do moving forward as Christians. When Peter says, to this you were called to follow in his steps, we must realize that he wasn't just talking to Christian slaves of the first century, but to all those who claim to be slaves of Christ, even today. It also teaches us about God's strategy for reclaiming the world. Now, as Americans, I don't know about your upbringing, but as American children, we are taught all kinds of wonderful things from a young age to stand up for ourselves, to not let others take advantage of us, to assert ourselves, to pursue our own dreams, and not let anybody tell us what we can and cannot do, to never surrender, to be bold. All good messages in their proper place. But when we listen to this text, we learn that there is a place for surrender, a place where our will is no longer the most important one. 
This text is about how the kingdom of God advances in this world, how it becomes a reality in this world. It is a battle for the hearts and minds of humanity. It's not about my salvation. It's not about your salvation. It's about the reclamation of God's creation. Evil is the enemy, and Jesus shows us how to conquer it. Not by withdrawing from the world into the safety of the Christian cocoon. And not by attacking either. Not by trying to legislate Christian morals and values. Uh, Not by trying to impose our belief systems like other groups might do. Like ISIS is trying to do through violence. The battle is won through surrender. The example of Jesus is one of love and sacrifice. Where we learn to put the needs of others before our own. Even when they don't deserve it. For that's what Jesus did. Giving back love when he received hate. You see, this passage reminds us that when you're in battle battle with others, whether they be strangers or friends, whether they be family or co-workers, whether they be parents or children or spouses, the path of love might just lead us to surrender. Even if you're in the right even if it means suffering. But it's not done out of weakness or timidity, but it comes out of consciousness of who you now are in God, of a recognition of the one we follow, of his values and his example. Now, I heard this story a number of years ago. I think I've even told it here before. But as an illustration of this attitude, it talks about a married couple who had reached an impasse in their marriage. And they had started out, of course, as as many loving married couples do, you know, seeing only the best in each other. But over time, of course, things began to change. Petty arguments and squabbles and selfish attitudes and caused them to drift apart. Now they they stood staunchly opposed to one another in the same house, and, and they don't even remember what they're fighting about. They're just angry. And the wife is getting desperate because she doesn't know how much longer she can stay in such a loveless marriage. And, and she wants a way out. And she learns that at church there's going to be this seminar by a guest speaker about marriage. And so she wants to go. And she asks her husband at breakfast that morning, would you go with me? He's like, I'm not going to that seminar. You think I need some help trying to fix me? So she goes on her own. She impatiently sits through the lecture, only half listening, waiting for it to be over. She then runs up to the speaker afterward and explains her situation. She says, well, it's partly my fault, and it's partly his fault, and I don't know how we got here, but how do we fix it? How do I save my marriage? And the guest speaker looks at her squarely in the face and says, surrender. And she, she kind of looks at him incredulous and says, did you not hear what I said? It's at least half his fault. And the speaker said to her, you didn't ask me whose fault it was. You asked me how to fix it. Well, she left in a huff. Next morning, they're sitting at breakfast at a table, he on his side, her on her side, paper up between them, kind of a protective barrier, in silence. After a period of time, he kind of lowers the paper a little bit, looks around and says, well, how did that, that meeting go last night? gets up from the table quietly, walks around to his side, gets on her knees at his feet, begins to cry and begging forgiveness. A minute later, he's down there right beside her. 
They surrendered to each other so that they could move forward in their marriage, so that they could gain the victory, the victory that comes through surrender. We're going to sing a song here in just a second. And as we do, I want us to remember the message of this text. That sometimes to advance, we need to surrender. That to be truly free means to be the servant of others. That life in Christ means death to self. That to save others might require us to suffer. Because what Peter says is this. To this you were called to follow in his steps no matter where that might lead. Remember that.